servant, including our worship team, uh, but everybody that's in the house serving, our ushers and our sound people and our security and those that minister to our kids. We're just, we're just really thankful for all of you. Thank you, Pete. I've been told that this is heavy, so anybody who brings it out is a strong man. Thank you. Oh, wow. That was, that was excellent. So, um, have you ever heard the saying, you go first? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody just said, I say it all the time. We do say it all the time. We might not say it, but we, we do say it uh, maybe quietly to ourselves or in our heads. But we do it like with a challenge or a dare, right? Like somebody dares you to do something. Well, you go first and then I'll do it, right? Or uh, we're just waiting for somebody to kind of pave the way for us for something that we wanted to do or think about doing and would be fun to do. Oftentimes it's involved with maybe even saying sorry, right? Like I'll say sorry when you say sorry. And most of us would try to say that we left that behind in our, in our childhood, right? Like you remember standing with your parents and, you know, you and your siblings are... Say sorry to your, I'll say sorry when he says sorry. But the truth is we actually bring that into our marriages, don't we? We, we, don't, we don't make it that obvious, but sometimes we're just waiting for the other person. Anybody this morning waiting for your spouse to say sorry? <laughs> you shouldn't raise your hand. That, that was a test. That was really good. You go first, right. Um, in fact, I uh, just want to encourage you, you know, how many of you are familiar with the five love languages? Like acts of service, uh, physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts, and quality time. Did you know there's also apology love languages? I'm just learning that right now. There's specific ways that we like to give and to receive apologies. And that's blowing my mind. Because my wife and I have very different apology love languages. She wants me to make restitution. And I'm not p- picking on her way. Her, like... You say sorry to my wife by, make, by doing something to make it right. To me, you just have to sincerely look me in the eye and say sorry. Generally, right? Think about it. Wouldn't that solve so many problems if we understood each other's apology languages? Not only our love languages, but apology languages. We wouldn't have to be sitting around waiting for you go, you go first, right? We would just say, I'm going to come into this and go first. Um, the most mature among us, I think, are willing to go first. And whatever it is that we're asking people to do. And I want to say it's no different with God. We're going through a series on covenant. We're discovering how God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. When we looked at Adam and Eve, we looked at God extending His rulership, His authority through the earth through Adam and Eve. When we looked at Noah last week, we see how God continues His covenant even when we jack it up. Right? Even when we mess it up, God initiates coming to us and saying, I have a plan. I have a purpose. I know how to do that. And that he has, he has a plan, even when he has to preserve life in the midst of judgment to see that redemption comes through the line of a woman. We see that God in this story this morning, this account this morning, we're going to get more specific how God is keeping his covenant with humanity through Abraham. And we're going to see how God goes first. So if you would, turn with me. We're going to jump right into your, to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. And I referenced this uh, over the last few weeks and I said we're going to talk about covenant, about God cutting covenant. We're going to see what that means this morning. 
Because it's not a very long chapter, we're going to read the whole thing. Here's what it says. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, and so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you'll have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, Look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I'll actually possess it? And the Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abraham chased them away. And as the sun was going down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. And the Lord said to Abraham, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, where they'll be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace, and you'll be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. And after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. And so the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Doing all the ites. So here we have this account of what might seem like kind of a strange encounter. You know, we kind of get that God speaks to people, that God talks to Abraham, but what we're reading here is a really interesting account of God coming to Abraham and not only being the initiator of covenant and speaking to him, but doing sort of a strange ceremony, and we'll explain it in a minute. But first we need to understand this. When we're talking about God making covenant, we have to see that God is the initiator. The Scripture says that the Lord spoke to him in a vision. In other words, God not only has vision, but He has the ability and the prophetic prerogative to be able to come not only into Abraham's life, but into any human being's life, the people that He created, and speak to us about what He desires for our lives. When God is making covenant with human beings, He's not coming in and doing a contract or a deal. He's operating in the vision that He has for you and me. And we ought to say anytime we hear what He has to say, yes, Lord, because His vision for us is good. His plan, His purpose for us is good. But oftentimes we receive His notion about His plan for us with fear. How many of you have been afraid that God would ask you to do something? (laughs) 
The reason why we fear God asking us to do something is because we don't have a clear picture of who God is. There's a sense of, of awesomeness and fear, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's different than the fear that God addresses in Abraham. Because when God approaches us, sometimes in His holiness, in His wisdom, in His goodness, we fear Him, and sometimes it's literally because we just don't want to do what he, we think He's going to ask us to do. And so God comes to Abraham and he says, don't fear. And what does Abraham say back? He says, what good are your blessings without a son? What good are your blessings without a son? Let me explain a little bit here. God had given Abraham a promise of children. But yet he's standing before the Lord and he still has not seen the fulfillment of that promise. And he says... the Eleazar, a servant in my house, will be made my heir. In other words, there was the option of legal adoption for somebody, a servant that was born into his household. This is not like somebody who just came as a hired hand. This was somebody who had been with Abraham his entire life. It wasn't like they couldn't have legitimately thought, well, God, let's fulfill your promise this way. But if they had done it that way, it would have cut God short. We do not have to cut God short in the fulfillment of his promises. Oftentimes, the things that God promises to us seem too good to be true. Oftentimes, the things that God promises are delayed in their happening or in their coming. Often, we don't see the fulfillment of what God has said because we have framed it a certain way. But here's what I do want to say. We don't have to cut God short. God, in fact, says this. Your servant will not be your heir in verse 4. You will have a son of your own who will be your heir. In other words, we can keep our sense of wonder. He will do things for us that we could never see or imagine. How many of you are holding on to a promise of the Lord for your family, for your life, for your business? Oftentimes we don't see it because we have an expectation of what it looks like. But here's what I am saying. Let's let God have that expectation, but let's hold Him to it that it's going to be miraculous. And it's going to be in a way that maybe we could not naturally, always, in a way that we could not naturally accomplish. So was this a case of Abraham just not getting what he wanted? His own way? I don't think so. If you look at the promise in Genesis chapter 12 that he received earlier, it was this. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those that treat you with contempt. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. There was a gap between the initial promise and its fulfillment. But this blessing that God had given him early was confirmed through the covenant. Here's what, I'm, here's what I think God wants us to know about this. Oftentimes when we have a promise from the Lord, it's not a promise of just him doing something for us. It's a promise to walk in relationship with him. And if we will trust him in the midst of that promise, not to try to make it exactly how we want it, but we'll just say, okay, I'll walk with you. We will have continuing revelation and relationship about what that promise looks like. God said that Abraham would be made into a great nation. He didn't say he'd have kids, specifically. But God was willing in relationship to dialogue with Abraham about what Abraham thought it looked like. And for God to answer Abraham, not as a demand, but as the part of that revealing process in relationship. 
It's like when you get married. How many of you are still married to the same person you said I do to at the, at the altar? That's a trick question. You're not. Hopefully. Hopefully your wife or your husband is not the exact same person you said I do to. Hopefully they've grown and matured. Hopefully you're not the same person and you've grown and matured, right? Or you have just discovered deeper depths of the reality of who they are. And sometimes when we do that, we get a little bit scared. It's like, ooh, I didn't know that. I didn't say yes to that. Or we can look at it as an invitation to relationship. That the more I discover about you, the more I'll know. The more we'll be able to bless one another and walk in relationship to one another. The more we can celebrate the unique ways that God's created us. The more we can discover even those parts of us that weren't necessarily created by God or aren't His will and need to be shaved off our lives or removed from our lives by God's grace. But if we will be willing to walk in those places with each other, why not even with the Lord? Where we allow Him to see into us. We tell Him the desires of our heart, even if we're not sure if they line up with His will. Because we know that in that process we'll discover His will or we'll discover what needs to shift in us. I think that's worth it. So what were the promises of the covenant that God gave to Abraham in this place? The first was land. Literal land. And we've looked at this before, and here's what we've discovered. You cannot divorce the promise and the covenant of God to do through the people of Abraham from his people or literally from the land. There's something about that land that is precious to God in fulfillment of his covenant to Abraham. He said he would make him into a great nation, and that he be blessed and be a blessing. If you note from chapter 12, all who bless him will be blessed. But there's a promise of being blessed as well. So what are the promises of the covenant in chapter 15? Very similar. The first is this. It's a promise of blessing and redemption. He doesn't start with, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you. And what's the blessing that he promises him? In the New Living Translation, it says this, For I will protect you, and your reward will be great. This is a translation that I don't particularly like. I love the New Living Translation most of the time. But here I think it fails to carry the weight of what God said to Abraham. Other versions say, I will be your shield, and I am your great reward. I am your shield, and I am your great reward. When he blesses Abraham, he blesses him with himself. That's different than your reward will be great. It's different than I'll just protect you. He says, I literally am your shield. Some of us need to just receive that this morning. Not that God will protect us, but that God is our protection. Not that God will reward us, but that God is our reward. Oftentimes we follow the Lord because of the things that we want. And we think when we get to that place that he'll just give us the stuff that we want. But the truth is this, the greatest thing he could ever give us is himself. That's what he does in covenant. He gives himself to us. And if that doesn't sound like a great deal, then there's something wrong with our understanding of what we're getting. We become transactional with him. And certainly there is reward for those who would pursue him and love him. But the first thing we have to understand is the reward is himself. He loves us so incredibly much. He promises them blessing. And he promises them redemption. He says, listen, I'm going to, you're going to be in slavery and I'm going to redeem you from that slavery. The second thing he promises is seed. Descendants. Remember we talked about 
God fulfilling His covenant to all of humanity through Adam and Eve through their seed. Through their descendants. See, whenever God gives covenant, it's not just about right now. We're always into like being personally gratified with whatever is right in front of us, right? I heard it said lately, don't, don't plan for the now. Don't give in to the now, but start to plan for the future. Right? Work, make decisions with your future in mind, with legacy in mind. When God comes in and cuts covenant with us, we have to understand it's not just about us. It's about him and his plans and his purposes in the earth. And his plans and his purposes in the earth have to do with our kids and our children and our children's children. And whether they're our natural children or our adopted children or our spiritual children, God has a plan for generations. He has a plan that goes beyond you and me. What we do matters. It's absolutely imperative that we understand we, we've got to walk in covenant for ourselves. But when, the way we walk in covenant matters to future generations. This is how God's going to bring about redemption through Jesus later that we get to experience because God had a plan that saw further. <clears throat> and then he promised them land. So how, uh, he did all this. He made these great promises. He says, look up into the sky. That's how many descendants you'll have. It's going to be your very own. He, he sets up the land and the boundaries of that land. He kind of defines what he said already in Genesis chapter 12, more in 15. But he makes it even more weird when he says, hey, Abraham, go get some animals and cut them open. Like, do you remember when you were little and you made, uh, you made blood brothers with people? My parents were always like, don't ever do that. <laughs> I don't think I ever did because I was so afraid of like, what would happen if I disobeyed my parents. But what God is highlighting is that there's always a need for a covenant to be confirmed in blood. Not to get graphic, but the covenant for Adam and Eve was, was, was made in blood. Not, not, I mean, when they sinned, God had a plan for them and he covered them with animal skins, right? But that wasn't the first time that blood was shed. Husband and wife coming together for the first time. That was a sign of the covenant through blood that they would fulfill the earth, they would fill the earth and rule over it, right? I don't have to get any more graphic to that, do I? Okay, good. The covenant with Noah. God gave them animals to sacrifice. The covenant with Moses, we read about and we'll, we'll look at next week and the Passover and the lamb and the sacrificial system and ultimately David. If you think about the covenant that we're going to look at in a couple weeks, Lord willing, about David, there's no real mention of blood in that initial covenant. But Jesus fulfills the covenant by shedding his blood. He is the ancestor who sits on the throne of David. Well, what I hope that you're seeing through all of this is that there's this continuum. Like it's not like one covenant and then another covenant and then another covenant and then another covenant. We're going to get to a new and a better covenant. But it's built on the covenants that God has made. God has covenants that are everlasting covenants with his people. Agreements that he makes with his people and the people of the earth so that he can show who he is. There's a continuum of them all the way through. And so we see that in this, God goes first. In this, God bound himself to us. In fact, if you look at this covenant, Abraham is bound to nothing. 
This ancient practice was what, the, the, the cutting of the animals was an ancient practice that was common at that time. When you would make covenant with somebody, you would take, an, you, the, 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 you would take animals, you would cut them in half, and what traditionally happened and what usually happened was this, that the underservant or the, the least powerful person would walk through the middle of those animals, and the symbolism was this. If I don't fulfill my end of the deal because you are more powerful than me, this is what will happen to me. I'll be cut in two. How many of you know that's a pretty powerful covenant? Pretty powerful contract, pretty powerful agreement. This was a, a, a practice at, in the, the period and at the time among these people. But what's really incredible is this. God himself is the one who walks through. God himself is the one. He doesn't require Abraham to pass through those animals. God says, cut him open. Abraham waits. He falls asleep. And then he sees a smoking pot and a flame, a torch, go through. That is the presence of God Himself saying, I am the one who will uphold this covenant. I have put Myself on the line. And it's a foreshadowing of the covenant that He makes with us through Jesus when He says, listen, when it comes to making it right, you can't do it, but I can, and I'm going to put Myself on the line. God goes first. And in this case, he doesn't really require much of Abraham. Although if you get to chapter 17, you'll see there's a way that Abraham starts to live it by faith. In chapter 17, verse 10, the sign of the covenant for Abraham is circumcision. I don't have to get more graphic than that, do I? Okay, good. Because I don't want you to get too uncomfortable, but here's the truth. We are also cut into covenant. And it really has nothing to do with actual circumcision. In fact, Scripture uses another cutting to describe it. In Romans chapter 11... Verses 17 through 23, it says this. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch and not the root. Well, you may say these branches were broken off to make room for me. Verse 20, yes, but remember, these branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He's severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you will also be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again, for God has the power to graft them back into the tree. See, here's how we are brought into this covenant. We're grafted in. If you don't understand what grafting is, it's an uh, agricultural term where you take a rootstock that's very strong and powerful and you cut just, just the edge of it, the live edge, into the bark, and you take a, a sapling or a, a branch from another type of tree or uh, uh, from another type of tree that produces a different kind of fruit, and you can grow that fruit because the rootstock as well. You tape it up, you bind it up, and it actually grows better. It's not that they do that because uh, the tree was dying the other way. It's just because the rootstock of some trees are much better at providing nourishment to other trees. And so have you ever seen those trees in catalogs where you can get like pears and apples and oranges off the same tree? That's grafting. That's not, that's not some magic DNA thing. Like, don't get scared like I'm eating genetically modified oranges. 
We've been doing this for generations, for all time, because we found that there's some roots that are better. We have been grafted in. We haven't replaced. It's not like God ripped up the root and threw us in and said, I'm going to take care of the Gentiles instead. But he's grafted us in. He's cut us into the covenant. And it's amazing because we share in the rich nourishment of the root. What's even more amazing is this. In Ephesians chapter 2.14 it says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when its own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new people from two groups. See, what it, what's true is this. When you graft a fruit, a, a apple into a pear tree, let's say you have a rootstock of a pear and you graft an apple in, you're always going to get an apple from that branch. The same DNA. In fact, how many of you like Macintosh apples? They're not my favorite apple. I like something like a Honeycrisp or a Zestar or like something that's like crunchy and tart and all that. I think, I think Macintosh apples are mealy. But did you know, do you know where Macintosh apples come from? They come from the Macintosh family farm in Canada. That's why they're called Macintosh apples. They were a, a, a variety that kind of grew on its own, but they realized, hey, these are better than some of the other apples that we have at the time. And so what they did is they cut off pieces of that tree and grafted it into other trees. Do you know that the DNA of the Macintosh apple that you eat right now is, a, is cut from the same DNA of that tree? It's literally the same, the same tree that has produced all these apples by grafting. I think that's pretty incredible. But what's really interesting spiritually is this. You don't contain your same DNA. God actually takes the DNA of the root and the DNA of the Gentiles, the DNA of the Jews and the DNA of the Gentiles, and he, he, he in, his, in his ability, grafts them into one new man or one new person. So that we're inseparable. We're, it's not like we're just junior partners. He says we've been grafted in and we receive nourishment from that tree. So we see that God goes first. And we see that God's willing to put himself on the line for covenant. What are some other ideas about covenant that we can take from this account? Here is this. Covenant always has responsibility. Covenant always has responsibility. God is committed long-term to his covenant with us. I think it's interesting that in the covenant, as he's telling Abraham, hey, what's this going to look like? He goes, oh, by the way, for about 400 years, it's not going to look like you think. He says, actually, you can be sure, I think is the word that he says. I'm in the wrong part. You can be sure, verse 13, that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, will they be as pressed as slaves for 400 years. We can be sure it will always not look like we think it should look. We can always be sure that the timing might not be what we desire. We can always be sure that there, there is an opportunity for us to say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. How many of you had that conversation with the Lord? How many, or how many of you are too afraid to have that conversation with the Lord? Listen, he, you can bring it to him. As long as we're willing to hear what he has to say, we will always be in relationship in a way that we can see his goodness. God's 
primary responsibility in this was to put himself on the line and to fulfill his word, even if it took generations. The primary responsibility of the people of God is this, it's faith. Faith, real faith, always results in action. But the primary responsibility that we have in covenant with God is faith, to believe God. That's what we read in Romans. We're, we're grafted in because we believe. If we fail to believe, we'll fail to be grafted in. The Jews who were cut off were cut off because they failed to believe. Our primary responsibility is faith. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 18, and this is uh, guys who are doing projection. I didn't have this before, so I apologize that it's not there. But if you look in Luke chapter 18, there's an account of Jesus Three different accounts. So one is this. He tells the account of the righteous widow. He keeps going to the judge and repeating over and over again, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I need. Listen, he's righteous in that he will give us what we need. We don't have to stop going to him. We can wrestle with him through these things. We can believe that he's the one who is able to do what we cannot do, that he will keep his word. Then he says, I want to talk to you who think you're righteous in your own strength. See, that's the other great news about covenant. We don't. God went first and takes responsibility for what we can't take responsibility for. History has proved over and over again that we are absolutely irresponsible and unable to keep up our end of the bargain. And we've got to stop trying to do it. We've got to give up the notion in any way, shape, or form that our own righteousness makes us good with God. We have to get off the hamster wheel of performance. We have to stop judging other people as we look at them and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Listen, that doesn't matter to him. All of us, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags to him. There's not one that's righteous, except he is righteous and he is able because of what he did on the cross to graft us in, to make us righteous, to take responsibility for that part of the covenant that requires blood. He did it for us. And because of it, we can believe, we can trust. And then in that same account in Luke 18, what does he do? He blesses the children right after that. How do we walk in faith? How do we respond to the invitation to God by faith? We do it by receiving his kingdom like little children. When God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to do all this for him, it says Abraham believed God and God counted it as righteousness. The primary responsibility we have is just to believe him, to trust him. Why is it so hard for us? Why is it hard? Because we have an enemy of our soul who's trying to rob the word of God from us. Because we like to be self-righteous and try to get it done ourselves to somehow prove to God or others that we've got it together. Because in some ways it's uncomfortable to let God do that. Why do I need to be special? Because the truth is this, and this is the other idea about covenant. Covenant attracts attention. Because God is so generous with his covenant, it attracts the attention of other people. We receive a blessing. 
In fact, he says, we read it, that if we bless God's people, God will bless his people, and if we bless God's people, we'll enter into that blessing as well. But that has been a burden for the people of God to carry throughout generations. In fact, the the Jewish people still carry that burden. Why do you get to be God's special people? And it's one of the causes of the rise of anti-Semitism. The other is that they have an enemy of their soul that wants to rob the people of God and the seed of God because God is going to bring these, this one new man back together again and he's going to, there's going to be a revival in the nation of Israel before Jesus comes. God is longing for his people to come back and he's going to see that done. God is faithful to his promises. But it attracts attention. Why is there such a hatred of the Jewish people? Because they're God's special people. Did you like it when you were little and uh, your brother or sister came to you and said, Mom likes me the best? Did that attract your attention? I was literally with uh, my four-year-old and her cousin this week and uh, I served them both some chips for a snack, like just a handful of corn chips. They wanted corn chips. And I put the cousins down first and then I put some down in front of my four-year-old. And she goes, why does she get more corn chips than me? Like, you're four, you didn't even know how to count. (laughs) But when somebody receives blessing, oftentimes we're jealous. Let me make it practical for adults. Like, oh, I would never bother with that. How many of you have gone for fish fries in the last couple weeks? Do you always feel like you're the one that gets a smaller piece of fish? (laughs) Blessing attracts attention. Covenant attracts attention. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, verses 13 and 16, Paul outlines, this is right before we read in Romans already, Paul outlines the reason, one of the reasons why God brought you and me and why are we here. It's to provoke jealousy in the original people of God. I stress this, Paul writes to the Romans, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. And it will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants were also holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because of the portion as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. So listen, if covenant attracts attention and we've been brought into covenant with God, let me ask you this. Does the covenant way that we live with God draw people's attention? Would we be accused of being followers of God because of how good he's been to us? That is a hard question for me to answer. I'll make it practical. I was on an elevator recently, and I know you're supposed to socially distance, but my daughter and I got on the elevator, and then another lady got on with us. She had a walker. And I was like, ooh, I don't know what to do here. I can't tell the lady with the walker to get off the elevator. I kind of don't want to get off the elevator because that could be offensive too. And I'm worrying about this. And as I'm walking off the elevator, I I didn't even think that I should have offered to pray for her. Listen, if I'm in covenant with God, the God that heals, the God that keeps covenant, not because I'm righteous, not because I'm good, but because he's good and he's righteous and he's able, why didn't I demonstrate the covenant blessing that I have to somebody who needed it? And it wasn't like she ignored us. We had a conversation. It was a slow elevator at the Walden Gallery Mall. Like, there was lots of time. Do you see what I'm saying? Would we be accused of being God's people by the blessing that we carry? Or do we hide it? 
The third thing is this, and this is the last point, is that covenant is a serious thing. Covenant is a serious thing. I know that we preach in jeans and we play guitars and, oh my goodness, the pastor's preaching in a hoodie. Like, is that even real? Is this a real church? I think we can swing both ways. We can swing to the frivolous and we can swing to the overly um, ceremonial. We need to be serious. We used to have a sign out. How many remember the sign in the lobby as you were walking in? I forget what it said, but it was like basically like you're entering hallowed ground, like you better be serious or something. It wasn't like that, but it was. Like it was that kind of message, only a little more scriptural language. And I think we can swing both ways. We can be irreverent or we can be overly reverent. But God's after the heart. And the heart of God is that we take his covenant seriously because he takes it seriously. When Abraham had his vision, when, when God told him to cut the animals open and Abraham had the vision of the smoking fire pot going between those animal parts, that wasn't some awkward, I had bad goat before I fell asleep dream. That was God saying, this is a serious thing. If you look at Romans chapter 11 again, look at verse 20 through 22 again. Actually, 19. Well, you may say those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself. Listen, but fear what could happen. That's not a fear of God asking you to do something you shouldn't do. It's not a fear of God that's unhealthy. It's literally a fear of what could happen. If I stop believing, if I stop trusting the Lord, what will happen to my heart? Verse 21, for if God did not spare the original branches, He won't spare you either. Does that sound New Testament to you? Sometimes we get sloppy with our grace. Sometimes we get sloppy with following the Lord. Sometimes we think that it's just this easy come, easy go, well, God will forgive me kind of thing. And certainly God is stuck on forgiveness, right? How many of you know God is stuck on His love and stuck on His forgiveness? But He doesn't abide fools either. He gives us choice. And will we treat the blood of Jesus with contempt and frivolousness? Or will we treat it with the great weight that it has? And I'm not talking about walking around... You know, like, oh, well, God's blood has covered me. And we have to be serious all the time. We ought to be lighthearted people. But that lightheartedness should come from an understanding that we've been set free and the power of that freedom because of what he did with his blood. <clears throat> he says, notice in Romans, notice how God is both kind and severe. I mean, like, the sign of the covenant that Abraham carried was not just his faith, but it was faith in action that resulted in circumcision. How many of you understand that is a serious sign? Right? It wasn't like when God came to Abraham, he's like, hey, uh, I want you to put this necklace on. Wear this necklace. Wear this Christian t-shirt or this 
Abraham covenant with God t-shirt and everybody will know that you belong to me. He went to the most intimate place and said, would you bear the sign of this covenant? And not just you, but everybody in your whole household. Understand, this wasn't infant circumcision. He went to it. Abraham did it that day and he went to his entire family and all the males in his family did this as a sign of their covenant walking with God. It was a serious thing. It was a real thing. Why? Because, not because they had to prove their goodness to him. It's because he is our reward. He, his presence is our reward. He rewards those. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, He rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we're going to celebrate communion right now as a response to this invitation to covenant. Does anybody not have elements that weren't able to receive that when you came in? Just raise your hand and Usher will bring that over to you. We celebrate an open communion here at New Covenant, meaning this. If you have relationship, if you've been cut into covenant, if you receive Jesus as the Lord and the Savior of your life because of what He did on the cross, you're welcome to celebrate with us. But this isn't just a tradition that we do. It's not about getting a snack halfway through the morning. This is about us remembering the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that was sacrificed for us. He was cut open so that we could live in covenant with God. His blood was spilled. He went first for us. And so as we do this this morning, let's remember that in doing this, we are marking ourselves as His. We're declaring to the world that we belong to Him. We're declaring to each other that we belong to Him. We're recognizing that there's responsibility in this and that He took the responsibility, but we're also taking it seriously. We're not just going through the motions. We are remembering what He did and the power of that covenant. So let me ask this. If you just bow your heads for a minute. It's so important that we do this before we go. If there is something in your life that you need to settle with the Lord, some area of unbelief, oftentimes we think of those areas as sin, but the result of, is sin. The, the, the beginning is an area of unbelief. We don't believe that it matters. We don't believe God is good. We believe that we should take care of our own needs our own way. If there's some place in our life of unbelief, that we need to deal with this morning. Would you just turn to the Lord? Not in a frivolous way because you've got to get it done before we do this, but in a real heartfelt way. God, I believe that you are righteous, that you are true, that your word is true. And I give this area to you. I trust in your blood to forgive me. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your heart or life to the Lord. If you'd like to do that this morning, I would love to pray with you. So would you, would you do me a favor or do me a solid? Would you raise your hand if that's you here this morning? You want to surrender your life to Christ? You want to enter into this covenant relationship with Him whereby His blood covers your sin and sets you free from your sin and you get to walk with Him now and spend eternity with Him? Is there anybody here? If you're too embarrassed to raise your hand, just I'll, I'll be around this morning if you just come and see me or let somebody know in the back. Let them lead you in prayer to surrender your life to Him.
But for the rest of us now, Father, we examine our hearts like You've asked us to in Scripture. We take You seriously. We take Your body that was given to us seriously. Your body that was broken and bruised for us, for our transgressions. Your body that was pierced for us and was given to us for healing. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son. Jesus, we thank You for Your blood that was shed to fulfill the covenant, to pay the price, that You went first in this, and that in being perfect and going first, You set us free from the power of sin, from the power of death, from the power of hell and of the grave. And You made new covenant with us covenant that you confirmed with your very own blood that allows us to walk free and in relationship with you. We declare this morning that you are our reward and you are our shield. We bless your name as we eat this and drink together in Jesus' name. If you just take a minute and stand, and we're just going to sing a response to the Lord before Pastor Kent comes to dismiss us.